For the last couple weeks, we have been looking at passages of Scripture from the Gospel of John, two in particular, where Jesus has performed uh, miracles, where he has healed people. Uh, At the end of chapter 4, we read a story about how Jesus met uh, this royal official. And this royal official sought Jesus out because he had heard, hey, this guy can heal people. And he didn't know firsthand, have any firsthand knowledge, but he came to Jesus. He was desperate. His son was really sick. He tried everything else. Hey, Jesus, would you heal my son? Jesus says, yes, I will. And he speaks the word. And 20 miles away, uh, the, the man's son is miraculously healed. And the man had that long 20-mile walk of faith to, to see that, in fact, Jesus could do what he said he did. And then last week at the beginning of chapter 5, we looked at a different story, a different kind of healing story, one in which Jesus actually sought somebody out who needed healing. Jesus wasn't asked to heal this person. Actually, this person was one among many sick people all around this pool of Bethesda, and there were lots of sick sick people around. We don't know why Jesus sort of made his way through the crowd, picked this guy out, healed him, and then made his way back out again. Uh, And so these two miracles, John calls signs. And, and one of the things that we're discovering as we make our way through the Gospel of John is that the, the idea of a sign is really important because a sign is intended to point to something else. Sometimes when you hear of a miracle, that sounds like a big final idea, like here's a miracle, and the, the, the miracle takes all the attention. John, the Gospel writer John, wants you to know that the miracle is not what is important. The miracle is just a sign. It's pointing you to something else. It's pointing you to the main attraction, and the main attraction is Jesus. Well, in this second miracle that we looked at, where Jesus healed this guy by the pool, he did it on the Sabbath, which uh, in the Jewish custom is Saturday. It begins Friday night at sunset, and it's all day Saturday while the sun is up. That is the Sabbath. So Jesus did this on the Sabbath, which is something Jesus sort of did a lot. The Gospels record that Jesus did a lot of healings on the Sabbath. It it really made the religious people mad. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. They weren't supposed to do any work. And so Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath, told the guy, hey, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and walks, which was also illegal to do on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath. So this guy's carrying his mat out. The religious people see him carrying his mat and they're like, hey, what are you doing carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Not, wow, you're healed, but why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? That is not okay. And so we're going to pick the story up there in John chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 13 and following. Now, this is kind of a long passage. I'm going to read all the way through it, but it really is important because it tells us something about what the signs are pointing to. It, it, tells, us, it tells us really two things in particular that, that we need to know. Who Jesus is... And what it is that he does. Who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So if you, if you have a Bible, John chapter 5, beginning in verse t- 13. Now the man, that's the guy that Jesus just healed. Now the man had been healed, who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son. We thank you that when we see Jesus, we can see what you are really like. Father, this morning as we just consider this passage, this teaching of Jesus that, uh, Lord, can be confusing. It's got big ideas. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice. That, Father, we would understand what it is that Jesus was saying. And, Father, that those words, those truths would would cross thousands of years and, and, and span the globe and penetrate different cultures and different experiences and meet us right where we are today. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is going on here? What is this passage teaching us? Jesus engages in this conversation with these religious leaders. Uh, you, You have to know that in some ways Jesus may have even been baiting them by doing this healing on the Sabbath. We don't really know. But Jesus fully engages with these guys and he says some pretty Uh, amazing things about himself in this passage. So what are these signs pointing to? What is Jesus saying? I I want us to know that they're pointing to two specific things, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So let's take them one at a time. Who Jesus is, who Jesus is. The first thing that this appears to be about is a religious argument, 
a religious argument about what you can do on the Sabbath. Now, is anybody in here old enough or studied in history the blue laws in the United States? Anybody remember what I'm talking about when I say blue laws? Okay, just a few of you. Okay, so, so, so what you, you need to know, the blue laws were laws that prohibited businesses from happening on Sundays. That was here in the United States, okay? Not that long ago. I I mean, really, pretty recently, actually. So there were laws that communities, states would would pass that would say, hey, because the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, we're going to make that part of the law. You can't open your business on a Sunday. You can't do. There were only certain things that were allowed and certain things accepted. I know that seems really odd, but it's actually true. Now, here's, here's the difference between a business that's not allowed to open because of a law and Chick-fil-A, okay? You know, Chick-fil-A has made that decision because of a, of a conviction of their, of their leadership, of their owner and, and the people who run the... Hey, we want to set this day aside to leave margin for our employees and for their families uh, to worship or do whatever they choose to do, but we're not going to be open on a Sunday. That's very different than, than some legislative body saying, hey, you cannot be open on Sunday. Do you see the difference in that? Well, if you think those blue laws sounded oppressive, they didn't have anything compared, on, to, compared to what was going on back in, the, in Jesus' day. I mean, it wasn't just that you couldn't run your business. I mean, you couldn't spit on the ground because that was considered irrigating a field. I mean, these, the Jews, I mean, they had carried this to the absolute total extreme. So Jesus seems to come onto the scene and he's like, hey, let me point out some things that you guys really have wrong, okay? One of them is this whole thing about the Sabbath. One of the things that this passage is telling us about Jesus is that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's where this whole conversation begins, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you look over at Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, he said that about himself. This is my day. Now, that's a pretty bold and courageous thing to say. This is my day. And Jesus is, is, is pointing out this idea. Listen, God gave you this law, the Sabbath law, as a gift that, that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The idea being that God said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create seven days and I'm going to set aside a day and I'm going to tell you, my people don't do anything on that day. Now, how can you not love a God who says, take a day off? I mean, that's the whole purpose behind it. Take a day off. I want you to enjoy it. Now, in our culture, we don't really think of that as having any significant meaning. But you've got to go back, back in time to consider. Every day, people worked so that they could eat that day. So it was a tremendous statement of faith for somebody to say, you know what, we're going to take a 24-hour period and we're not going to do anything because we trust God. That's what they were saying. We trust God. But somewhere along the line, This day, which was intended to be a day, hey, stop and reflect on my goodness. Take a break. Take a break and trust me that I am your God and I provide for you. Somewhere along the line, it twisted and it became something legalistic like so many religious principles do. So Jesus stepped into the middle of that situation. And here was a debate that was going on. One of the things that we've discovered from reading other religious Jewish texts from the time is that a debate was going on. Does God himself work on the Sabbath? 
Now, think about this. If you've heard ridiculous religious debates before, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, or, you know, you know, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? I mean, all these sort of, you know, debates that you've heard about God, there was one going on in this time, and that was, okay, if God made the Sabbath, and it's part of God's law to say, don't do any work on the Sabbath, does God himself stop working on the Sabbath? Now, that seems kind of silly to talk about, but there was a lot being written by Jewish writers at this time, which might have been given you part of the context of what Jesus was trying to communicate to his religious audience. He was, he was trying to give them an answer. About 100 years after Jesus, there was a group of Jew, Jewish rabbis that got together and said, in fact, yes. God does work on the Sabbath, but no, God is not breaking the law by doing so because God is outside of the law. God is outside of creation. That he created the heavens and the earth, he created the law, therefore he cannot be contained by them. And so when Jesus, when Jesus did healings on the Sabbath, when Jesus said in Matthew, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus was making a really important statement about who he was. That, hey, it's not just God. I am God. We are one. I am outside of this. I am Lord of the Sabbath. So by, by engaging himself in work on the Sabbath, he is making a very important statement. But it wasn't just this. Because we know that Jesus doing healings on the Sabbath made, made them mad, but something that Jesus said actually made the religious people want to kill him. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. But we know from John chapter 5, what we just read, the religious people were seeking to kill him. And it wasn't just because of the fact that he was working on the Sabbath day. The second reason, the second thing this passage tells us about Jesus is the reason they wanted to kill him. And that is this, that he is the unique son of God. The unique son of God. Look what he said in verse 19, that Jesus, he said, I do whatever the father does. I do whatever he does not i do what the father does by itself in other words god this is kind of who god is kind of what and so i'm gonna do the things i see god doing but when he used the word whatever he was implying that there's nothing the father does that i can't also do now that's that's a pretty bold statement i want to show you one of my favorite pictures of my son caleb i think we've got it here um okay this is the this is him at two years old. You can see me in the background, uh, much younger. Um, and he's in the front. Now, <clears throat> Caleb, from the time he could very first walk, was fascinated with lawnmowers. And when I would mow the yard, he would stay at the little window and press his little smudgy nose and mouth against the window watching. So one year, I can't remember if it was birthday or Christmas or what it was, we got him what was a bubble mower, Fisher-Price bubble mower. And you put bubbles into the little thing, and when they push it, it blew bubbles out. So we got him one, and, and he was he was sort of old enough to walk, and so we let him take his little bubble mower out. And when I would mow the grass... He would mow the grass. Now, here's what, here's what he would do. He would walk every step of the yard with me. He, and look how intent he is. I mean, he is, he is determined. He did this for so long that we wore out, was it like three bubble mowers? I mean, we, he wore the wheels flat off of those things because he was, he was so fascinated with mowing the yard. Now, what is that? Part of that is, 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 in, is sort of in us. 
that we see what our parents do, and, and we want to do that as well. Now, when he turned about 12 and had to really mow the grass, he wasn't nearly as interested in it as he was when he was two. But this, this is part of the way we're wired. Now, the, the, the people in this day would have understood that sons do what their fathers do. Sons do what their fathers do. That's not as true today as it, as it was. Um, even back in the 1800s, statistics say that about half of the sons, primarily we, the data is really only on men, half of the sons would grow up and actually do the same job their dads did. In a 2003 article by Jane Thine in The Guardian, uh, she said that, that, that there, today, there of college graduates, only about 10% of people uh, pursue the same career path as their parents. But that's still, that's, the odds are still better than normal. About 10% overall will pursue. Interesting that 20% of parents who are in healthcare, 20% of their children will also go into healthcare. Listen to this. When you get into farming and agriculture, 35% of the children of farmers also become farmers. But if you go back 2,000 years, there was a, a vast majority of people did what their fathers did because they were trained from a very young age. I mean, from, from, from the time they could, they could walk and the time they could communicate, dads would begin to put the tools in their son's hands and they would do what their fathers did. So when, when Jesus said, I do whatever my father is doing, he wasn't talking about Joseph the carpenter. He was talking about something more, and his audience understood that. He was saying that he was equal with God in a way that was different from everybody else. He wasn't just saying that I'm a son, I am a son of God. He was suggesting I am the son of God. Listen to what it says in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You see, if Jesus was just saying, hey, I'm a son of God, everybody... There was some degree to which everybody is a son or daughter of God. I mean, that's not an offensive statement. He was making a, a, a claim, a unique claim about himself. And this is why they were trying to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And here comes the key, making himself, what's that next word? Equal, equal to God. Because he does whatever the father does. Now, how many of you, I'm, boy, I'm going old school today. So how many of you remember George Burns' movie, Oh God? Anybody remember that? Okay. Yeah. Netflix. Even some younger people remember that because of Netflix. So, um, so Oh God, George Burns played God and he was actually old enough to be God. I mean, he was, you know, in his 90s, he was very old and he's playing God. And in, in that movie, there was a question that somebody asked George Burns, uh, who was playing God. He said, so is Jesus your son? To which George Burns said, well, sure, Jesus is my son. And so is Muhammad, and so is Buddha, and so is everybody. But, but Buddha wasn't killed. The Buddha wasn't killed because he claimed to be the son of God. And Muhammad wasn't killed because he claimed to be the son of God. None of those other religious people made the same claim that Jesus made about himself. Jesus did not say, I am a son of God. He claimed something far more controversial than that. So controversial that they would seek to kill him. This is part of the problem that the, that the religious people had with Jesus in this day. And it's still the problem the world has with Christianity and the claims of Christ today. Because there is something incompatible about Jesus. He just won't seem to play by the rules of our pluralistic society. Jesus, just be like every other religious leader. 
Just be content to be a great prophet. Be a great moral teacher. And Jesus says, I can't do that because it's not, it's not who I am. Jesus is making a radically exclusive claim about himself. And people that we talk to in our culture, they, they want to say, well, Christianity is just like any other world religion. And, and they want to suggest as if, well, by saying, by, by making them all equal, somehow that creates a, a, an opportunity for us to, to get along. As if, as if there's this ability for us to, to coexist because we're all on the same plane. The problem with that is if you are a Christian, that's not what Jesus said about himself. Jesus made a claim about himself that does not fit into the religious systems of the world. I was talking with somebody this morning who said, you know, all the other religious systems of the world seek to make bad people good. Christianity seeks to bring dead people to life. But there's a huge difference in what Jesus is claiming about himself. He did not give us that option. You can take Buddha and Buddhism or Muhammad out of Islam. You can, you can remove those leaders from those, from those views, and those worldviews stand on their own. Islam, the, 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 faith of, the faith of Islam, does not require Muhammad in order to stand. Buddhism does not require the Buddha, the, the Buddha to stand. Christianity completely falls apart without the person of Jesus Christ. It cannot exist apart from him and his unique claim about himself. And here's where people, and some of you may even be offended by this idea, but I'm, I'm just saying what Jesus said. I'm just saying why the religious people were so angry with him. We have to understand that that claim still exists today. And here's here's where I think the distinction comes and why it might be hard for us to, to understand this. Jesus makes an exclusive claim about himself. He makes an exclusive claim, but he makes a universal invitation. You see, it's not an exclusive invitation. It's not that I am the Son of God and only this group of people gets to the Father through me. He he makes an exclusive claim about himself, but he says, whosoever will believe can be included. And so there's the distinction between the exclusive claim of Jesus and the universal offer that he is making. So who Jesus is, that he is in fact God, and that he is the unique son of God. But what Jesus came to do, this passage also tells us some, something really important about what he came to do. First of all, he came to reflect the Father. Listen to what he said in verse 19 and 20, that he reflects the Father. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Do you know what that tells me? That when you read the gospels, as you're making your way through and you're reading the stories of of Jesus, everything you see Jesus doing is what God is about. Everything you hear Jesus teaching is what God is communicating. Every, Every characteristic, every personality trait that you see in Jesus, God is saying, this is who I am. You can know me by knowing my son. Because he only does what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown, he will show him so that you may marvel. 
God says, I have sent Jesus into the world to give you an example, to show you. And all the miracles, all the things you're going to see him do, they're so that you will stand in awe of me. They're so that you will understand who I am and what I am about in, in the world. So when we see the things in Jesus, we see the activity of God. So he, he reflects the Father, but the other thing he does is it says he gives life. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, this is, this is really important. And this is part of the reason why I believe Jesus chose to do so many of his miracles on the Sabbath, to make a point. You see, here's the problem in our world, that, that we live, and you know this, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where Sickness and death are the order of the day. I mean, you, don't, you can't make it through the course of a day without seeing evidence of the brokenness of our world. Not because the person who is broken necessarily sinned and God punished them by breaking them. But because just the results of a broken world bring about all kinds of effects on even innocent people. Uh, war and famine and hunger. I mean, you see it. You watch the news and something inside of you instinctively knows... If you're not a Christian, you know this is true. Something inside of you goes, that just isn't right. There's there's something hardwired into us that recognizes there is a rightness and a wrongness. And it may or may not have anything to do with your religious or your moral convictions. But you understand, okay, this is wrong that this happens. This is wrong. And so when we look at the world that way, God said, I'm going to step into this world and I am going to recreate what I created in the beginning. Do you remember how the Gospel of John begins? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when God at the very beginning said, let there be light, and there was light, and God said, it's good. And God said, let the waters be pulled together and the dry land appear. And it was good. And he created plants and they were good. And he created, he created all, you know, the heavenly host and it was good. And you go through that Genesis poem of creation and over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he created man and woman and he created them in his image. And he said, it is very good. Oh, and, and you see this picture of what it was supposed to be. But sin has broken it. And so Jesus steps into the scene and he begins to reverse the curse that we see in Genesis. He begins to take things that are dead and breathes life back into them. He takes things that are broken and he mends it. And so you see in the miracles of Jesus a picture of what it is that God is seeking to do to restore creation and to put everything back into order and to reverse the effects of sin in our world. And so Jesus comes and he does these miracles and he does them particularly on the Sabbath because he wants the world to stand in awe of what it is he is doing. You all, he said, he said, watch this, this idea of Sabbath rest. You find it not in a day of the week. You find it in me. You find the completeness of your soul inside of me that I give life. I restore what is broken. The other thing that Jesus does is it says he judges. Look at, look at verse 22. The father judges no one but has given all judgment 
to the Son. Now, we don't really like the word judgment. I mean, we, we really like, you know, we like Jesus. We like the love Jesus. We don't really want to talk about the judge Jesus. And, and some people have looked at this passage and says, okay, this, here's, here's a contradiction. Because here it says, the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. But if you go back to John chapter 3, verse 17, the passage says uh, that G- God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that to save the world through him. And you say, okay, how do those two things both exist? Well, part of the reason those two things exist together and, and exist in tension but do not contradict one another is this. That in Greek, the word for condemn and the word for judge is the same word. So sometimes when you see, if you're reading your English Bible, you see the word judge or you see the word condemn. In Greek, it's the same word with two different meanings. It's one of those things about translation. So when you read John chapter 3, verse 17, that, that God did not send his son into the world, the, the better translation of that is to condemn the world. But here it says he does send it to judge the world. In other words, there is this moment in which we, 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 we gather before and Jesus says, or God says through his word, it is Jesus who stands as the judge. Interesting, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with this, if you've never read the Quran or you don't know much about the, the, the faith of Islam, uh, Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, and ironically enough, they believe he is the prophet who will stand in judgment of the earth at the end of time. It says it in the Quran. You can speak to Muslim friends. They, that's what they believe. They don't know much more about him, but they do understand that this, whoever this Jesus, this prophet, they say he, they only claim that he's a prophet, but he stands in judgment. So they, they, that's a point of connection between Christianity and, and Islam, that he stands in judgment at the end. But, but notice what Jesus says. He stands in judgment, but not in condemnation. Because when we all come before him, it is understood that we all fall short. That there's nobody who stands before God completely innocent. And you know this is true about yourself. It doesn't take a, it doesn't take a pastor to browbeat you or a religious person to condemn you to know. I mean, you understand and know, and this is true about you, that there are things about you that you know aren't perfect. You say it all the time. Well, I'm not perfect. I mean, you said that about yourself, and, and you, you sort of look at some of those things. You, you know this is true because you don't even live up to your own expectations and standards. You, you fail yourself all the time. So when we come before God, we all stand on equal ground, and in that, in that is in face of that judgment. We all deserve condemnation, but here's what Jesus says. Jesus, the Son of God, comes to give life, but in order to give life, he sacrifices his own. That he becomes the one who pays the penalty for our sin and our brokenness. That he said, I stand in judgment, but I am going to step off of the bench and I myself am going to suffer the penalty for your sin so that you may be set free. So that you may experience life and wholeness. This is the message that Jesus is offering. That he says, I am the one who is uniquely qualified to lay down my life. Why? Because he is God. That the only one who could pay the penalty for the sins of the world had to himself be perfect. Had to himself be the absolute perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was. That's why the unique claim of 
Christ, the unique claim of Jesus, is so critical to Jesus being able to do what he claimed to do. And while all of Christianity hinges on that. So he's the judge. And here, here's, here's coming out of that. Here's something else Jesus said that must have really, really just, uh, just, just tweaked those religious leaders. He doesn't just accept, but he demands our worship. Listen to what he said in, uh, in, in the next verse there. He said this, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now, if you're, if you're Jewish, one of the, the main statement of faith for a Jew is, is there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one, and you are to worship him only. Here comes Jesus, and he says, hey, guys, that's me. You should worship, just like you worship him, you should worship me. I mean, listen. This is, why, this is why Jesus cannot just be a good moral teacher or prophet. He is, he is either who he said he was, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. Because a normal person doesn't say that about themselves. Muhammad didn't say it about himself. The Buddha didn't say it about himself. Confucius didn't say it about himself. Jesus makes this claim about himself, and you can't get by it. That if you worship the Father, you should also worship me. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you say, well, what what makes him so worthy of worship? What makes him so worthy of the fact that we could gather together and and we could sing songs that that tell his story and and that speak of his truth. First of all, we know in Philippians chapter 2, this is what what Paul said about Jesus, that he was himself God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he laid it aside, and he took on the form of a human, even the form of a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That Jesus was willing to humble himself. Jesus was willing to set aside his rightful place to come and take on flesh and live among us. But not only did he live among us as an example, he ultimately would give his life away so that we could have life. That in this great, great reversal, God himself places himself beneath his creation for the betterment of men and women who were created in his image. And so this is what, how that passage ends. Therefore, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2. Why is Jesus worthy of our praise? Because of what he did. In in, in the book of Revelation, John, who wrote what we read today, um, also wrote Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this great picture of worship in heaven. And and in that picture, um, all sort of the, the... the people in heaven are gathered around and they're, they're worshiping God and they're looking for somebody who can open the scroll and read the scroll, but nobody's found worthy. And all of a sudden, John says, there was one who came in like a lamb who had been slain. Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said about him? There is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus walks in and they, they bow before him and they say, for you alone are worthy 
See, Jesus is worthy of your worship because of who he is and what he's done. That, that he's worthy of your trust because of what he's demonstrated. And so when you read the stories of miracles, when you read the stories of healings, they themselves are only to point you to a greater truth about Jesus, that he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And and, and as you walk into this room today and as you gather here for worship, you come in and, and listen, life can be hard and there can be lots of things that happen even in the course of the short six days between the times we gather in this place that remind you of your humanity that remind you of your brokenness that remind you of the sin in our world that has scarred it and so many times we 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 come to that and and we associate that somehow with god or we try to reconcile those two things and how can a loving god and what would a loving god do and, and, and maybe some of you are here today and you wrestle with that. You struggle with that. And Jesus says, let me show you what a loving God does. A loving God himself comes in and steps into your reality. A loving God is willing to endure the pain that you endure. A loving God brings about the wholeness that was intended from the very beginning. And it is what he can do for you today. What does it require of you? It requires you to acknowledge, first of all, your need. That that you and I and all of us are broken people. And not to make excuses for that or try to to, to sweep it under a rug or try to say, well, at least I'm better than, than, maybe I'm better than at least half the people in this room, so maybe maybe the top half get into heaven and the bottom half don't get into heaven. You know, I, I love this phrase, and we've used it before, but it's so true. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. If good people go to heaven, we're all in trouble. And Jesus said, I didn't come to make you good. I came to give you life. I came to make you whole. So this morning, this morning for you, if if you would look at your life and you'd say, hey, that's me. That is what I am in need of. I'm in need of that life that Jesus spoke about. It's so so simple. It doesn't even require me. It didn't even require you to come to this place, although I'm sure glad you did. It's, first of all, an admission on your part of your need. And second of all, a confession that you recognize in Jesus what is required for your salvation. And third, a commitment to say, to the best of my ability, I'm going to seek to follow after him. That as he reflected his father, I am going to seek to live my life in such a way that I'm a reflection of him. And that's it. That's it. You escape the judgment of God and instead enter the life that he has offered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths um, that Jesus spoke and John recorded in John 5. And Thank you for the truth, even though it's hard and sometimes it's difficult in our culture and our society to align it with uh, what the world would communicate or, or how the world views these teachings or the teachings of Christianity. But Father, inside of each of us, there, there is a debate that is far more important than any external debate. There's a debate inside of us that what do we do with our own sickness? What do we do with our own brokenness? What do we do with our own limitations? And Father, I pray this morning that all who are here 
would, would just for the next few minutes set aside the external debate and instead focus on the internal need. And that anybody who's here today who is living in the brokenness of their life, who feel far away and separated from you, that today, in these radical claims of Jesus, they would hear an invitation that whoever would receive could find peace with you. Father, I pray that they would, that they would engage in, in a day, a week, a month, a lifetime uh, of considering these claims, Lord. Because if, if, they're, if the claims are true, then they make a radical difference in the way we understand you and the way we understand what you're doing in our world. So, Father, I pray that today you'll work in the lives and the hearts of those that you've gathered here. And, Father, that by faith they'll respond to the invitation to join with all creation, every tongue confessing, every knee bowing, that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory and your honor. Father, I pray this in his strong and powerful name. Amen.